From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, July 4th. I'm Marco Werman. Today, scientists celebrate at the world's largest atom smasher. It's a fantastic moment where we've actually discovered something new, and it's a piece of the puzzle that was really holding up our future progress. Also today, good news for prisoners in Brazil who happen to be bookworms. They can get their sentences reduced by writing book reports. And Mexico's green, white, and red national flag reinterpreted for the drug war. It is green for pot, white for coke, and red for your blood. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. And by WGBH, producer of Masterpiece Mystery. Don't miss the new season of Inspector Lewis, Sunday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It was about as close as particle physicists come to shouting Eureka. In a packed conference room today in Geneva, scientists at the European Organization for Nuclear Research, known as CERN, announced that they had discovered a new subatomic particle. They think what they found is the long-sought Higgs boson. The physicist after whom it's named, Peter Higgs, was in the crowd. Well, I would like to add my congratulations to everybody involved in this tremendous achievement For me, it's really an incredible thing that it's happened in my lifetime. It's taken... (laughs) Indeed, it took a long time to find the particle. Higgs and other scientists first theorized its existence half a century ago. Another physicist who came up with the idea for the particle, Tom Kibble, explained its significance. Well, it's the last missing piece of the standard model of particle physics, which very successfully explains um, all the experimental evidence that we have and this piece has to be there to make the model work. Okay, but wait a minute. I'm not sure I understood that. What does that mean? David Barron is the world science editor and we're going to see if he can explain in lay terms just what the heck this Higgs boson is. I'll do my best, Marco. Okay, so people are calling this the God particle. I understand it has something to do with why matter has mass. Explain that. Right. Well, the God particle is kind of a misleading name for it. We might get to that in a minute. But but yes, the, the big question is why do some particles have mass and why are some heavier than others? And the theory that uh, was devised 50 years ago was that that empty space isn't actually empty, that it's permeated by this energy field, which is called a Higgs field. And uh, some particles interact more with the Higgs field, and as they move through space, kind of get slowed down. And this field, if it exists, should have a particle with it, and that's the Higgs boson. David, can you maybe state that in a simpler way using an analogy? I'm always good with analogies. (laughs) Absolutely. Right. Well, one that I've heard that I like a lot is... uh, Imagine if, if if we all lived underwater, right? If we if we were living in this this invisible medium, but we found that it was kind of hard to move through it. And some people or some things, like a moray eel, can move through water very quickly. A uh, blue whale has a little more trouble; it goes more slowly. Mm. But 
what, what is this thing called water? Well, if we're living in it, how would we prove that water exists? Well, if water exists, uh, there should be these tiny particles that make up water, and those are, of course, water molecules. Well, it's the same with this theorized Higgs field. If the field exists, there should be a particle associated with it, and this particle, which it took a very long time to create and find, that would be the Higgs boson. So it's sort of like a particle of water, but it's in this this energy field that permeates space. Okay, I think I get it much better now. So why do people call it the God particle, David? Back to that God issue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that it turns out it all comes from an, an unfortunate marketing gimmick. Um, Leon Letterman, a famous Nobel Prize winning physicist, came out with a book some years ago about the Higgs boson. He wanted to call the book the Goddamn Particle, uh, because it was so hard to find. It was his editor who, who thought a better title would be The God Particle, and it stuck. But this is not necessarily the most important particle out there. It's one of the many important particles that explain how how the universe works. But uh, The God Particle, great marketing gimmick. Not sure it really means much. David Barron, the World Science Editor. Thank you, as always, David. Thanks, Marco. For the scientists involved in today's announcement, they're not just celebrating, they're figuring out what work comes next. We caught up earlier today with Jordan Nash. He's a professor of physics at Imperial College London and a member of one of the teams that found the new particle. He spoke to us from CERN, the physics lab in Switzerland, and explained why it took so long to find a particle that was predicted by a theory half a century ago. Well, it's a really beautiful mathematical idea but it didn't have any predictions about the properties of this particle. It didn't tell us what it would weigh or where we should look for it. Um, it just told us that it would be out there and interact with every other particle. So it just it has taken ages to search for it. It's been something that required us to build this fantastic machine, the Large Hadron Collider, to have enough energy in our collisions to produce it because it turned out this particle itself is extremely heavy. Right. I mean, I, and I think that's kind of interesting because uh, basically this is not a discovery. You, you reproduce the, the, the Higgs boson. It depends what you call discovery. We have found a mechanism. We've found a particle that, that does this. Um, we've produced it in the lab. What we did was predicted that such a particle could exist on the basis of a beautiful mathematical theory. And we are finally seeing in the lab something that vindicates this, this very clever, very elegant mathematical idea as being something that reflects what is actually there in nature. You said before we started speaking that this is a fantastic day for science, but I've heard that some physicists are experiencing kind of a tinge of disappointment at finding what seems to be the, the, the Higgs boson particle, as if this discovery was a final piece of a puzzle to understand the universe. I mean, do you and your colleagues now know all there is to know about the universe? No, this is really just a start. It's a, it's a fantastic moment where we've actually discovered something new, and it's a piece of the puzzle that was really holding up our future progress. And it's going to be the start of a journey of really understanding it. So it's going to give us a lot of excitement and discoveries to look forward to over the coming years, and uh, we'll want to really produce a lot of them to understand how they work and really open up a new adventure in looking at the next phase of discovering how the universe is put together. And for physicists like yourself, when does the celebrating uh, Higgs boson uh, end and the new quest uh, for new discoveries begin? Well, we've started the new quest already. So we're, uh, you know, we're busy trying to understand what all this means. And you know, we've shown you the first hints, but uh, we'll, we're already thinking about how we're going to attack this problem 
I have to say this is probably one of the most spectacular discoveries in my career. And it's really um, exciting to know that now we're on the start of a, a journey to really understand in depth what's going on. And we have the tools now to do it. Jordan Nash, a professor of physics at Imperial College London. He's also a member of one of the science teams at CERN in Switzerland that announced today the discovery of a new particle, likely the Higgs boson. Professor Nash, congratulations to you and the team at CERN. Thank you. Thanks very much, Marco. And we've got a lot more online about the search for the Higgs boson and what the discovery means. You'll find links to our partner program, Nova, at theworld.org. And we've got a challenge for you. Explaining the Higgs boson in a few words is no easy task. But we'd like to see if you can come up with a haiku about this subatomic particle. You know how a haiku works. It has three lines. The first is five syllables long. The second is seven. Then five syllables again. Here's what science editor David Barron came up with. God particle found, so say CERN scientists now. But whose God is it? Okay, so what's your Higgs haiku? You can tweet it, use the hashtag Higgs haiku, and we'll share the best ones later this week on the radio. Again, the hashtag Higgs haiku. A parliamentary commission in Israel today recommended that the government require the ultra-Orthodox to serve their country and that they be penalized for dodging national service. Currently, ultra-Orthodox men are allowed to attend religious schools rather than join the army. But Israel's Supreme Court has ruled that the government must devise a new draft law. Lawmakers who represent the ultra-Orthodox, or Haredim, are up in arms. The world's Matthew Bell reports. The committee is recommending that by 2016, 80% of draft-age Haredim should spend two years in the military or a year and a half in some kind of civilian national service. If they refuse, they should be fined. That would be a big change for a segment of Israeli society that has been mostly exempt from army service since the founding of the state of Israel. The recommendations are not being received well by some ultra-Orthodox leaders. One lawmaker said today they could lead Israel down the road of violent sectarian conflict. Students at the Devar Yeshiva on the outskirts of Jerusalem recite and debate the Holy Scriptures in a study hall. For tens of thousands of Haredi men in Israel, this is the ultimate pursuit in life. They spend years devoted to full-time religious study, and the idea of interrupting this activity to spend a couple of years in the Israeli army is simply unthinkable. During a tea break, a 23-year-old ultra-Orthodox student tells me that for Jews, there is nothing more important than studying Torah. It's something that just can't be put on hold, he says. What if the government comes to you and says, we need you, we need you to go in the army? Go to hell. Go to hell. That's right, he says. We're not going to accept national service and we're not going to accept being drafted into the army. About 1,500 Haredi soldiers are currently serving in the Israeli army, even though most of them aren't required to be there. Newspaper editor Yeshai Horowitz says whether the government tries to force 80% or 10% of ultra-Orthodox yeshiva students into the army, there's going to be a major backlash. If there's going to be some, even in a small uh, number, that will come and say, no, we want from the yeshivot, you should take our people and send them to the army, force them to go to the army, there's going to be a war about it. Because this is something we can't compromise about it. 
Horowitz says he's a proud Zionist and supporter of the Israeli government, as are many Haredim, but God and religion come first. He says if a draft is imposed, the Haredi political parties would quit the government coalition and the ultra-Orthodox would go to jail or even leave the country rather than sacrifice their religious independence. When some secular Israelis hear such threats, they say, be my guest. A small cluster of green army tents and protest signs are set up next to a busy street in downtown Tel Aviv. This is the so-called Suckers Camp, an ongoing demonstration of Israelis. Veteran Mickey Gitson says secular Israelis are being played like suckers because for them... Military service is mandatory. Many people feel that the fact that they give so much and take so much of the social burden of of this society on their back makes them suckers because there is this population who actually serves in the army, pays tax, work, do a lot of things that, you know, are social duty in any normal society. And you have a population who doesn't do it and with a religious excuse, but but from a political reason. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu finds himself caught in the middle of the politics. Some of his coalition partners say they'll bolt if any new law drafting large numbers of Haredi men is enacted. Other coalition partners are insisting they'll leave if the law isn't adopted. They want a tough new draft law that includes fines for anyone who refuses military or national service. The very government committee created to deal with this issue was a victim of political squabbling. It was officially dissolved at the 11th hour, but still went on to publicize its recommendations today. Israel's Supreme Court has set a deadline of August 1st for the government to devise a new system for drafting people into the army. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. Still to come on the program, the new French president makes good on a campaign promise to legalize gay marriage. That's on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. A good book may be bringing smiles to the faces of some prisoners in Brazil, and not just for the stories. As a reward for writing a report about a work of literature, philosophy, or science, a prisoner can get time off his or her sentence. The BBC's Paolo Cabral is in Sao Paulo. So this new program, Paolo, just how much time is this worth to the prisoners? Uh, It's actually four days uh, per each book, and that's limited to uh, 12 books, which should mean uh, 48 days uh, per year. It's not just any book, as you have said. I mean, it's got to be literature, philosophy, science, and and so uh, this this, uh, inmates would read these books and then uh, write their essays. I mean, uh, of course, uh, the law is written in a way that individually an inmate could also take this initiative of of choosing a book in the list of of approved books and Mm. uh, and then do his uh, his or her essay. but the idea is to have workshops in the prisons, really, to try and bring the idea of reading to those people. Right. So they've got to write these essays or book reports. Who's going to read all these book reports and assess whether the inmates are, are not just faking it? 
Well, these uh, federal prisons, actually all of them have already uh, some sort of education inside. I mean, classrooms and teachers and people that uh, uh, organize this there. So uh, this would be uh, uh, the people who would actually judge this along with uh, a commission formed. And there are some rules that have been spelled out that should be uh, written in clear Portuguese and in, in handwritten. It's not going to be a, a complicated book report or mm. anything like that. I think it's just the idea is to make sure uh, that the person has, has read uh, the book and, and, and understood uh, something about it. So, uh, I mean, if it's made honestly, it should not be difficult, really. Right. No, nobody's going to get cliff notes in prison, though. Um, no, not that idea. <laughs> why did the federal government want to do this in Brazil? I mean, was it to inspire good behavior, which is possible, or reduce overcrowding? According to Brazilian law, nobody can stay for more than 30 years in prison. So uh, it doesn't matter how long the sentence is. The prison time is limited to 30 years. Then there mm. is something like an automatic parole. Mm. Uh, so pretty much everybody is coming out uh, at some point. And so what they say is that the idea is to get these people ready to leave for society. I have actually talked about this to the director of the federal prison system, Arcelino Damasceno. We know that... Uh some peoples don't agree with this, but uh, it's our job. We have to prepare the prisoners to return to the society. Arcelino Damasceno there mentioned that some people may be against this plan. What has been the reaction to this reading program in prisons? Among experts, among people that work with this, criminal lawyers, uh, this has been uh, widely supported. But there is also a strong opinion among the general public in Brazil uh, that actually, I mean, you should not have much mercy on prisoners to have done their crime and that should actually be in jail and not take many breaks on that. Paolo, have you seen the reading list? Uh, no, I haven't, and they haven't issued yet a specific reading list. They just say it should be literature, philosophy, uh, classics, or science. And this is going probably to come out in the next few days or a couple of weeks. Right, so uh, probably no Shawshank Redemption, no Papillon, nothing in the prison break genre, I'd imagine. No, I don't think so. I don't think they want to stir this kind of ideas in there, you know? <laughs> <laughs> the BBC's Paolo Cabral on Brazil's Reading Through Redemption program to cut prison time for inmates if they just write a report on a good book. Paolo, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Books are popular outside prison walls, too. Yes, even kids like books. But let's face it, not all children have access to a wealth of books. In Valparaiso, a coastal city in Chile, a small library is doing something about that. The world's Alex Galifant reports. The library is called Libro Alegre, Happy Book. And it is a happy place, stuffed with dolls, Lego, and one of those toy kitchens with plastic food. But first and foremost, it's a library, stuffed with stories. It truly is genuinely is a unique collection of books. Imogen Mark is a volunteer at Libro Alegre. She's British but has lived in Chile for years. This is how the place works. People donate books, mostly from Scandinavian countries. The books get translated into Spanish. Finally, and this is what makes Libro Alegre different from most other libraries, those translations are then printed out and stuck into the books, right over the original Danish or Swedish or English. So they're recycled books, but they really are books that don't exist anywhere else in Chile. The library is actually in two places now. Most of the books are in the main building, in what you might call the touristy part of Valparaiso, not far from the harbour. But there's also a collection of books high up in the hills above the city, in a poor neighbourhood called Monte Donico. You reach it by taking a bus up a steep, windy road. It's a part of Valparaiso that could seem sad if you were just passing through. Thick clouds settle on the ground like they've given up. 
But in the courtyard of a small medical center, there are three red shipping containers. They open up to reveal a local branch of Libro Alegre. The containers arrived from Denmark last April, loaded with books. They'd also been kitted out for story time, so a kid like Jericho here can pick a book from a shelf, find a seat, and get into a good story. Evelyn Badia runs this outpost of Libro Alegre. She says the kids see themselves reflected in these books, and they're surprised when they recognize themselves that way. Libro Alegre is the brainchild of a Danish retiree by the name of Anne Hansen. She used to live in Chile, working as a teacher here. After she returned to Denmark in the mid-90s, Hansen had her big idea. There was an enormous gap, and I thought, well, let's start a library and let's see what will happen. Hansen saw that there were very few books available to children in Valparaiso, and she didn't want them to miss out on the experience of sharing a great story. Children need uh, cuddling. Imogen Mark says the books Hansen brought over also introduced a new kind of storytelling to this part of the world. Chilean children's books, she says, still tend to be stuck in the 1950s. They're intended to improve the reader, to teach a child something, ideally a moral lesson. You know, if you don't eat your soup, you'll die, that kind of thing. There are few Chilean books that simply tell a story from a kid's point of view, something like this. La noche que Max se puso un traje de lobo y comenzó a hacer una travesura tras otra, su madre le dijo... That's Where the Wild Things Are by Maurice Sendak, one of many American books in the library that's received the translate, print, and stick treatment. Esa noche en la habitación de Max nació un bosque, y el bosque creció. Libro Alegre began with a collection of 50 books. Over the last decade, the team has translated some 1,500. Imogen Mark is aware that more often than not, the kids portrayed in the picture books are blonde-haired and blue-eyed and the pictures show European or American homes. And that sometimes is a bit troubling for us. But the themes are universal. What happens when your grandfather dies? Or how do you feel when you go to school and you don't have any friends? The most popular books in the library, Imogen Mark thinks, are the ones featuring Spot the Dog. But there's another one, a German book, that kids gravitate towards. It's called El Topo Quería Saber Quién Se Había Cagado en Su Cabeza which translates as the mole who wants to know who has pooped on his head. Imogen Mark says the kids at Libro Alegre are just like kids everywhere. They love that book because they get to say the word poop a lot. For The World, I'm Alex Galafent, Valparaiso, Chile. By the way, there's one big exception to the idea that Chile hasn't produced much literature from the viewpoint of kids themselves. That's the classic series Papelucho. You can read more about that and see photos of Libro Alegre at theworld.org. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, former bank chief Bob Diamond tones down his American brashness when questioned by British lawmakers. And we've got the story of the sale of a 19th century painting. It's one of the great heroic British landscapes, painted in the midsummer, huge billowing clouds, just the essence of what is wonderful about Britain and the British landscape. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, 
an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. A high-flying American who, until recently, led one of Britain's largest banks, appeared humble today as he faced a grilling before British MPs. Bob Diamond, former head of Barclays, told members of a parliamentary committee that behavior by his traders was reprehensible and wrong. Barclays has already paid a $450 million fine to settle charges that it rigged a benchmark interest rate. The BBC's Rob Watson watched Diamond's testimony. He says Diamond tried to defend Barclays but was also apologetic. Of course, it's quite a tricky act to pull off because he is seen as being one of the most prominent, perhaps one of the loudest, the best paid bankers in Britain. The MPs were obviously mighty angry at what they see as a scandal that they fear could damage London's uh, reputation as a financial centre. But he was determined to come and say, look, this was down to a number of rogue traders. I didn't know about what was going on, and you shouldn't tarnish Barclays, and that somehow Barclays was getting a bad rap, simply because it was the first bank to be named, but that there were lots of others out there that had done the same thing. And Diamond surely had to defend uh, himself and the company. The questioning was pretty pointed. Let's listen to an excerpt of Labour MP John Mann grilling Diamond. Here's one part of what Mann had to say to Diamond. The people working for you are fiddling the system, potentially some of them going to prison, criminality, you're the man in charge, you tell us, modestly, that in such a situation you lose your job, which you have, and and, and you lose your shares. That's a pretty small price for you to pay, or have you another suggestion of how you can show some contrition to those Barclays staff across the country and the customers who are wondering and emailing me in vast numbers saying, what do I do with my money? Do I take it out of this rotten, thieving bank? Now, Bob Diamond is an American. Rob Watson in London, did you detect an element of nationalism here as members of parliament from the UK grilled an executive from across the pond? I don't think there's any doubt that there is perhaps underlying it all a a certain anti-Americanism or certainly anti-American bankerism, if I could put it that Mm. way. It's crept into some of the coverage with a lot of people saying, well, a British banker wouldn't have behaved in this way. It it didn't come out in the committee, but you bet that it's lurking there, this sort of sense of, here you go, here's this brash hard-talking American. And of course, a lot of his defenders, both here in London and the other side of the water, have said that that is deeply unfair and that uh, I've heard that some people in the United States think that actually the the financial service industry in in the UK was perhaps rather foolish to lose him so easily. Mm. Now, Diamond is known for being brash, but uh, as you said, he came before the committee today with a mission to be contrite. Here is Diamond describing his reaction to reading emails sent between Barclays traders in which they encourage one another to manipulate rates in exchange for bottles of champagne. When I read the emails from those traders, I got physically ill. It's reprehensible behavior. And if you're asking me, should those actions be dealt with? Absolutely. Now, at the heart of this investigation is a charge, uh, Rob, that Barclays rigged something known as the LIBOR. That's an interest rate used between banks loaning each other money. Recap for us briefly the accusation against Barclays and, and also how did Diamond handle these charges of fiddling with the rate today? 
there are two phases to it. The first phase is that individual traders were manipulating the, the rate in order to do good deals, to get a good deal for themselves and for the bank in particular trades they were making. But that there was then a second phase where the bank was trying to make it seem as though it could borrow money more easily than it could or at a lower rate than it could in the middle of the financial crisis in 2008. Now, what really seemed to stagger most MPs was what the, when they asked Bob Diamond, well, when did you really know about this? He said last month, mm. but that the bank, when it had been contacted by the authorities, had cooperated all along the way, and that that's why he felt that Barclays was getting a bad rap and that, after all, all the other banks were doing it too. What really struck the MPs, and clearly they were pretty incredulous, was, well, you know, how come all this could have been going on at the bank and for you not to have known about it. But he very much stuck to the line that, that he didn't know and that there were reasons why he didn't know. Did Bob Diamond point the fingers at, at others at Barclay to share the blame for the scandal, or is he taking the full heat? Well, he's pointing the blame at others in the sense that he's saying this was traders and the people that were supervising the traders who let down the other 140,000 employees at the bank. So in that sense, he's pointing the finger. But I mean, clearly, he's accepting overall responsibility. He said that was why he resigned, because he felt that the good employees at Barclays weren't going to get a proper hearing in the court of public opinion uh, as long as he was a lightning rod. The BBC's Rob Watson in London. An early 19th century masterpiece has become one of the most expensive British paintings ever sold. It's a landscape called The Lock by John Constable, and it's sold at auction for more than $35 million. Its now former owner is a flamboyant Spanish baroness named Carmen Severa Tyson, or as the Spanish like to call her, simply Tita. Tita is a former beauty queen who's one of the heirs to the massive Tyson fortune. By all accounts, she's among Europe's super-rich. But she says the economic crisis forced her to sell the painting. The world's Jerry Haddon has more. Before last night's auction, the sale of Constable's masterpiece was causing quite a stir in Spain. <laughs> That's Tita Tyson at a recent press conference toasting with a beer. The blonde, bejeweled 69-year-old said she hoped her extremely important painting would fetch her a lot of money, which she said is crucial since she needs the dough. People say I'm a millionaire, she told reporters, but I'm not. Maybe I am in terms of all the paintings I own, but I'm asset rich and cash poor. Thyssen owns nearly a billion dollars worth of paintings, including half a dozen by Gauguin, a Picasso, and hundreds of others. Most are on permanent display in her museum in Madrid. She also has four estates, some 80 employees, a huge yacht. She inherited this stuff from her late husband, Hans Heinrich Thyssen, a German businessman. Tita Cervera was a beauty who won the Miss Spain contest in 1961 and went on to a glamorous life. She married... That would be the second Tarzan from the classic Tarzan films, the actor Lex Barker. Hans Heinrich Thyssen became Tita's third husband. She was his fifth wife. All along the way, there were kids, and they're all fighting over the family fortune, including the world-class art collection. It's the kind of blue-blood feuding that Spain's press can't get enough of. Nearly lost in the tabloid noise is the beauty of the constable painting sold yesterday. The piece is called The Lock. Sotheby's Juicy Pilkanen describes it. It's one of the great heroic British landscapes, an upright view of 
Denham painted in the midsummer with the lock keeper pushing open the gate, the water rushing through, this tremendous landscape beyond, huge billowing clouds, just the essence of what is wonderful about Britain and the British landscape. And selling it, fair warning, at twenty million pounds. Sold. The buyer of the lock chose to remain anonymous at today's auction, perhaps to steer clear of the ongoing art battles in the Thiessen family. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. As Americans today observe 236 years of independence, we want to check in with a country that'll soon be celebrating its second Independence Day. This is an African nation. It's flanked by, among others, Ethiopia and the Central African Republic. A year ago, it became the 193rd country in the world. This nation won its independence from a larger country to the north. The independence celebrations didn't last long, though. Tensions between the two countries quickly rose over a disputed oil-rich region and fighting broke out. Things are barely less tense now. So what is the name of this new African nation? We'll reveal the answer in just a few minutes. The new French president, François Hollande, made a campaign promise of legalizing gay marriage. Since 1999, couples in France have been allowed to enter into civil unions, whether straight or gay. But today, Hollande's prime minister, Jean-Marc Ayrault, confirmed that the law will soon be changed. The BBC's David Chazanne has been covering the news from Paris. And David, tell our listeners, first of all, what civil union in France was and how this law will change that. Well, civil union will continue to exist. As you said, it was introduced in 1999 and it applies to both homosexual and heterosexual couples who don't want to get married but who want to publicly make a commitment to each other. So these civil unions are recognised by the state but uh, civil unions do not confer the same sort of inheritance or parenting rights as marriage. And that is something that same-sex couples have been lobbying for for a long time on both inheritance and the right to adopt children. And it looks like that's what they will get from next year because uh, Francois Hollande wants to give same-sex couples exactly the same rights as heterosexual ones. Now, Prime Minister Ayrault said uh, that the law will come into effect early next year. And its passage is really in response, he said, to changes in society, lifestyles and attitudes in France. I'm wondering how much of a surprise this was, this law, and what has changed in France? Well, it didn't come as a surprise at all. It's been expected and it was one of the planks of François Hollande's presidential campaign. What has changed in France? It's interesting. About 10 or 15 years ago, a majority of French people opposed gay marriage. Now, more than 60% of French people are in favour of gay marriage to the point where I think it's fair to say that it's really only a very small minority of French people who are still against it. Now, you're in Paris, David. How have the French there reacted from what you've seen? Or do those poll numbers pretty much uh, suggest people wanted this and it's there now? People wanted it, people expected it, and there's been hardly any reaction here at all, simply because people have been focusing on the other things that the Prime Minister had to say about the economy. I did speak to a gay rights organisation this morning and they said, well, this is wonderful news. They have issued statements saying that they welcome this move, of course. Um, They also told me that there were going to be queues 
of people uh, lining up to get married when the law does change. I think the only controversial issue that's left, as far as gay couples are concerned in France, is not marriage but adoption. Mm. Now, the opinion polls still show that most French people support giving gay couples the right to adopt, but the figures are a bit lower than they are for marriage. And Now, I think the reason for that is because a lot of people feel that bringing up children should be done by a man and a woman and there are fears, particularly in the case of male homosexual couples, that men are like more likely to be sexual predators than women. And so that's why they're a bit worried about the notion of two men bringing up children on their own. But what the gay rights groups are saying in response to that is, well, there's nothing to suggest that gay men are any more likely to be sexual predators than heterosexual men. David, final question. If those cues, those lines to snag the first gay marriage in France do transpire early next year, where is the big place in Paris where, where we can expect to see those lines? I think it's going to be somewhere around the Marais because that is the gay quarter of Paris and I think if there is any action like that, that's where it'll happen. The BBC's David Chazan in Paris. Thank you so much. Thank you. For today's GeoQuiz, we were looking for the world's most recently recognized nation. The answer is South Sudan. A year ago, South Sudan seceded from Sudan following a referendum that was overwhelmingly in favor of independence. Relations with Sudan remain tense, but come next Monday, July 9th, the South Sudanese will celebrate their own Independence Day. Last year, the full text of the Declaration of the Country's Independence was read aloud by the Speaker of the Legislative Assembly in front of a large audience in Juba, the capital. We, the democratically elected representatives of the people, based on the will of the people of Southern Sudan, hereby declare... Southern Sudan to be an independent and sovereign state. And with a new nation comes a new national anthem. South Sudan, which celebrates the anniversary of its independence from Sudan on July 9th. That's the answer to today's GeoQuiz. One style of traditional music in Argentina hasn't become anthemic yet, but it is gaining in popularity and technology. Tomorrow on the program, dance music in Buenos Aires takes a technical turn with lots of synthesizers and loops played from laptops. Enter the singer Mariana Jegros. She's sensual, she's beautiful, she has qualities of connecting with the audience. Argentina's electronic music scene gets sexy. That's tomorrow on The World. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from WGBH, producer of Masterpiece Mystery. Detectives Lewis and Hathaway are back on the case, battling a crime wave in the academic haven of Oxford, England. Don't miss the new season of Inspector Lewis, Sunday night at 9, 8 central, on PBS. 
I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. An exhibit of vibrant artwork from Down Under ends this week in New York City. The show at Soho's Gallery 95 is called Ancient Land, New Territory. It features work from 12 Aboriginal artists from Australia's Central Desert. As Marlon Bishop reports, Aboriginal painting is a force to be reckoned with on the international art scene. The canvases on the walls at Gallery 95 are covered with amorphous forms and twisting patterns, almost dizzying to the eye. At the show's opening, gallery visitors Carl Ryan and Dana Dawson shared their impressions. I think it just looks kaleidoscopic, uh, very just cool colors, burnt siennas, oranges, yellows. Very vibrant, very uh, interesting to look at, very appealing to the eye. Without a doubt, it's abstract art. The paintings wouldn't be out of place hanging next to Pollock's or Motherwell's. But these works weren't produced in New York or Paris. They were painted in the Australian outback by indigenous artists, artists like Yangi Yangi Fox. We live in a country that has stories all around us, and we put those stories in the painting so that people understand the stories. The canvases are a means of telling the stories. These so-called dreaming stories are a sort of Aboriginal mythology passed down through the generations. The abstract forms in Ms. Fox's paintings represent the actions of ancestral beings and geographical features such as hills and waterholes. The stories are an important part of traditional culture, regularly told verbally or sung at family gatherings. <laughs> Mrs. Fox and the other artists from the exhibition live in Kalka, a community of 150 people in Australia's vast central desert and a four-hour drive to the nearest town with a post office. They paint at Ninaku Arts, one of about 100 indigenous art centers that receives funding from the Australian government. Claire Eltringham manages the center and came to New York with several of the artists to visit the exhibition. Art centers are sort of community-based, indigenous-owned organizations. They're one of the only places where people can find employment and support their families. For impoverished villages in the outback, that money is pretty significant. One painting at the Soho show sold for almost $20,000. An Australian government auditor estimates that fine art sales bring in a total of $40 million annually to indigenous communities. The record sale price for a single painting is $2.4 million for a work by Clifford Possum Japuljari. You can't go anywhere in Australia now and find a gallery that doesn't have Aboriginal art. Fred Myers is an expert on Aboriginal art and culture based at NYU. He says that Aboriginal painting caught on with international audiences in the 80s, partially because of its resemblance to contemporary abstract art. Since then, proceeds from art sales have been used for everything from community swimming pools to dialysis centers. Myers says that the art centers have created an economic model that allows Aboriginals to stay in their traditional lands rather than have to migrate to the cities for jobs. They want to stay on the land. They want to stay in their own country. They feel that their country is getting respect and value in the outside world. So it, there are many, many levels in terms of cultural respect in which this has been important. In general, painting has been a much-needed success story for Aboriginals. Indigenous Australians continue to suffer disproportionately from social ills like poverty, alcoholism, and domestic abuse. For Claire Eltringham of Ninaku Arts, the art movement provides a counter-narrative to the kind of patronizing and neglect that has been endemic in Australia for decades. I see it as one of the few places where Indigenous people have got the power to actually determine their future and it's also through the medium of paint so it's a really beautiful thing for the world i'm marlon bishop abstract kaleidoscopic vibrant appealing to the eye see the paintings for yourself at theworld.org 
Mexico's Electoral Commission today gave regional authorities the right to order recounts of last Sunday's presidential election. This comes amid growing evidence of vote buying. It's souring the election for many Mexicans. Others already felt pretty sour about Mexican politics. Camilo Lara, for example, he's a Mexican musician who goes by the stage name Mexican Institute of Sound, or MIS. For years, he's gotten rave reviews for his funky remixes of retro Mexican pop music. But this year, Lara turned away from the party music. Just before the presidential election, he released a political song. It's simply titled Mexico. Mexico is Camilo Lara's caustic commentary on what the country has become during the past six years of drug or narco violence. We're living in a place that is almost at war, where all the people that are supposed to take care of your safety are working with the narco and, and the people that are causing the violence. So I guess I try to do this kind of a song that speaks from my point of view. I don't have any agenda. I'm just a citizen that uh, does music. The lyrics for Mexico don't spare Mexico's sacred institutions. For example, Camilo Lara skewers the Mexican national anthem in his song, and he unconventionally deconstructs Mexico's green, white, and red national flag. It is green for pot, white for coke, and red for your blood, which uh, explains pretty much the the situation. And uh, I guess we would have to recap what is happening right now. That would be a clear uh, way to put it. And I wanted to do that because Mexican flag and Mexican anthem are these icons that most of the people never touch. And I guess it would be hitting something really precious on our culture. It's perhaps not surprising that Lara is not happy about the return to power of Mexico's pre-party and the victory of its candidate Enrique Peña Nieto, now president-elect. Lara directs this dig at Peña Nieto, whom many Mexicans believe won thanks to sympathetic coverage from some big TV networks. We have a rotten system because we have a dictatorship on the media, and and the media has created these candidates that are appealing, and they are almost like a soap opera character. So it's a really sad week for us. Camilo Lara, a.k.a. M.I.S. Mexican Institute of Sound. His new song is called Mexico. You can see the video at theworld.org. The song is part of a new Mexican Institute of Sound album called Politico, which comes out next month. That's our program today. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Follow me on Twitter, at Marco Werman, and enjoy the rest of your Independence Day.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Carnegie Corporation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, the Annenberg Foundation, and the PRI Program Fund, whose donors support the critical work of the nonprofit sector. Contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. PRI Public Radio International.